You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. Thank you, Todd, as well. I appreciate you sharing with us, brother. It's, it's always a joy when your family is back here. Um, we're grateful to God for how He's using you um, in Southeast Asia. Um, but uh, it's a different church when you're here. And so we greatly appreciate um, just you guys, just at every level. We're thankful to partner with you and what the Lord's doing there. But we're always glad to see you here. And congratulations. <laughs> Should I tell them? Because I really want to, but I, I mean, I'm okay if, if you want to. I mean, I do have the mic now, so. You might, you might as well tell them. So, okay. So, so Jess is pregnant. And this week I had lunch with Todd, and we already had it scheduled before um, I, I, I knew any of this. And he walked in, Jason's Deli, and looked a little flush. And we got, you know, we just kind of small talked and sat down. I said, man, you okay? He said, yes and no. I said, what's up? He said, well, Jess had her ultrasound today. I said, well, well, was it okay? He said, yes and no. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, there were two heartbeats. I said, you mean like, like Jess's heartbeat and the baby's heartbeat, right? He said, no, two, two baby heartbeats. So they're, they're pregnant with twins. So we uh, we had a running joke because uh, you know we, you guys know we have six children and Todd and Jess have five and we were good with settling settling with a tie but he he and Jess beat us with a walk off two run homer <laughs> in the bottom of the ninth and we're you can you can have <laughs> you can have the trophy man you win I'm out so all right well if you have your Bible this morning. We'll be in Exodus chapter 22, Exodus 22, beginning in verse 16 through verse 31, Exodus 22, 16 through 31. As we continue our journey through the book of Exodus, we're still in what's called the book of the covenant according to chapter 24, the laws given by God through Moses to his people. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, they cry out to me, and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. 
for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beast in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we have some interesting verses before us this morning. Um, and just like every morning, and whether the Scripture makes perfect sense to us or seems relevant to us or not, Lord, it's, it's Your Word and we believe that. And Father, we always need Your help. We always need Your help in understanding and we always need Your help in communicating and explaining Your Word. And so, Father, I ask that You would speak to us this morning. I pray that we would um, have a deeper understanding of what it means for us to live rightly before You and also live, to live rightly before others, even though some of these laws do not directly apply to us and to our lives. Um, the principles do. And, and so, Father, I ask that You would teach us that this morning. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you're reading an ESV Bible, you'll notice the heading over this section of the law is laws about social justice. And, and I don't think I have to tell many of you, if any of you, that that's a very popular phrase, um, sometimes controversial, um, sometimes much beloved. Um, but this section particularly has to do with justice on, on a broad scale. And so if you want to jot down, I, I think, the question that this section is, is answering, specifically for the people that it was written to originally, but what it can answer for us as well, at least in a matter of principle, is what does it mean to live rightly as God's people? All right, and we're going to look at it on, on two planes, if you will, uh, see justice on two planes. And so if we're answering the question, what does it mean to live rightly as God's people? There's first a vertical plane, and it's justice in relation to God. And what does it mean for us to live rightly or justly before God? And then there's a horizontal plane that is under the answer of that question as well, is justice in relation to one another. So what does it mean for us to live rightly before God? And then secondly, and in that order, by the way, First and foremost, as we think about biblical justice, what does it mean for us to live rightly before God is primary? And what is secondary is what does it mean for us to live rightly in relation to one another? My hope this morning, even though it's not going to be exhaustive and, and not by any stretch of the imagination some sort of comprehensive teaching on biblical justice, but what I hope that we can walk away with this morning is at least some, some, some foundational truths and some foundational things that we can begin to understand and wrap our mind around what biblical justice is and how we as God's people are to engage society and, and what in fact our call is in that. But we always want to let the Bible define our terms. And so sort of a, um, a, a motto for me in preaching is, is this, where the Bible says something, say it emphatically. But where the Bible doesn't say something, don't say it. 
All right. And so th- that's how I approach scripture each week. That's how I approach the, the preaching and teaching of God's word. That's how I approach discipleship. Um, and, and so I, I, I think it's just, I mean, it's simple. I know it's not necessarily profound, but, but I just express it to you to let you know that my personal conviction and the conviction of our elders is, is, is that if the Bible says it, we say it emphatically. If the Bible doesn't say it, then we don't say it. And so let's, let's begin in verses 16 through 17. This text jumps around. And so um, I, originally I had the vertical plane and justice in relation to God. I had it all together, um, but the text doesn't really lay it out that way. So we're just, it's going to jump around. We're going to start off with horizontal as, as we look at this issue with women in particular. And then in verses 18 through 22, we're going to see uh, justice on the vertical plane as it relates to the Lord. And we'll kind of go back and forth throughout this text. And then Lord willing, we'll end it with um, some, some, some application in regards to social justice and that phrase in, in our day. So verses 16 and 17 say this if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife for father utterly refuses to give her to him he shall pay money equal to the bride price for for virgins and so just for clarity I think it's important to point this out at the beginning um, of, of, of this particular topic because this isn't speaking of of rape Rape was punishable by death. You can see that in Deuteronomy chapter 22. What this is talking about is is seduction, but it is something consensual. Um, The man obviously is the initiator here of the sweet nothings. But it, it would that does not necessarily imply or mean that the woman was was not willing. And so because of the other laws that we know that God lays out, uh, the, the, this isn't a situation of, of rape or anything of that nature. This is a consensual thing. But they engaged in the act made for marriage, which is sex before marriage. And so then we, then we have to ask the question, well, now what? And so the man was supposed to pay the bride price. Now, I, I know that sounds offensive. I, I, I understand that that, at first glance, at face value, sounds like that the woman is just this, this piece of property. But it's actually not the case at all. Um, the bride price was there to help protect the woman in two ways. First, the man had to show some means of providing for this woman. Two, It ensured formal conversations with the family. So in the Old Testament, they understood, and and the New Testament, they understood that marriage is a covenant that consisted of a ceremony, a, a public ceremony that had oaths and vows, and then it had the ratifying sign or seal, which is the act of sex. But both people then and now sometimes do the ratifying thing without making the formal promises. You tracking? Okay, they they engage in the sexual act before the public ceremony, before the Lord, and before the witnesses and families of, of the oath and and the vows. And so the bride price helped to prevent the couple from avoiding counsel, and that there was a formal process that the community was a part of. And so this this law simply says that if they are going to be married, he still needs to pay the bride price. So 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 here's the idea: if they engage in in the uh, act that's made for marriage before marriage, that doesn't mean you let one bad decision compound and continue to make bad decisions. At that point, if, if in fact this was going to be a union that was going to, that you know, they loved each other and they were going to move forward with marriage, then they still had the formal process. And so the bride price was, was still owed. It wasn't just because they engaged in this act that they automatically had to go get 
married. No, he still had to show that he had the means to provide and to care for this woman. And so also, also, this is another way that it, it protects the woman. Rico Suave could not get out of it just because he's already done the covenant ratifying thing without the promise. And so even if the dad utterly refuses, if, if this is something where the, the family agrees that hey, hey, this man is, is not what's best for this young lady, uh, or, or, or if the man just says, no, I'm not marrying her and I'm going to move on, by law, according to the Mosaic law, he still had to pay the bride price. So, so, so Rico can't just bail. He can't just engage in the sex act and then just leave the woman high and dry because in their culture it would have been much more difficult for a female to get married after she had lost her virginity. And so, so this particular rule, again, at face value, it seems like, well, the woman's just a piece of property and she has no say-so in this thing when that's not really the case at all. It was put into effect to ensure that the woman was treated was treated fairly, and, and it upheld this, uh, the sacredness of the marriage covenant by God's design. Now, verses 22, I'm sorry, verses 18 through 20, we shift from the thinking about justice on the horizontal plane. That particular section we just saw, 16 and 17, was fairness for women or justice for women. This next section goes to vertical in 18 through 20. And it says, You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Verse 19, Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Verse 20, whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on these, but, but these are capital punishments giving for three particularly heinous crimes or, or sins. I mean, these are actions that are against God Himself, and they're against His created order. Now, I, I want you to jot that down, and I want you to kind of do some studying on your own and some thinking on your own about how these particular sins attack God's, God Himself and also God's creative order. But first one is sorcery, which is just an attempt to wield spiritual power by demonic influence and sometimes just by outright lying and making stuff up. The second capital crime was bestiality, when a human lies with an animal. Um, bestiality was sometimes in their culture a part of pagan worship. Um, they, they thought it would stimulate the gods and, and produce for, um, fertility. I will say one thing on this. I, I would not be surprised to see a movement in our lifetime to normalize this sin. Um, and I know how that sounds, um, but the direction that our culture is going, I don't know how much you know or understand history around this sort of sexual revolution that's going on, but at its core, at its core, uh, it, it, it has some very, very grotesque things and really its heart and what is driven by sexual freedom, which means if you have the desire sexually, you should have the freedom to engage in that regardless of what it is. And so, again, I, I don't know that for sure, but at this point, I, I would not be surprised to see that normalized. But that is an attack on God's creative order. Clearly, a human lying with an animal is, is not the way God designed that to be. Third is, is idolatry. If you notice that in verse, I believe it's in verse, let's see here, in verse 20. 
Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. This is idol worship. And so this, if you remember a few weeks back when we saw where the Lord was attacking these specific gods through the plagues, we talked about how sophisticated their idol worship is, or, or I'm sorry, was. And it, it was very sophisticated, much more sophisticated than, than our idol worship. But idol worship, and we, we coined this definition a few months back, but it is this, um, is, to, is, is the love and worship of something or someone as God that isn't God. The love or worship of someone or something as God that isn't God. And so for them, it was much more sophisticated. So they would actually offer sacrifices and engage in intentional worship and have rituals around these false gods. For us, um, it may not be as sophisticated, but it is still just as much um, a possibility for us to love something or something as God that is not God. And, and, and so these things are not living rightly before the Lord. So justice as it relates to how we live rightly before the Lord, these things clearly are against God Himself and against His creative order. In verse 21, we go back to the horizontal plane. Verse 21 says, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you are sojourners in, in the land of Egypt. So, so what this law is meant to protect is to protect those sojourners or foreigners. There's no place for the sort of attitude among God's people that says these foreigners are dirty, strange people. I don't want them living by me or being around me. I don't want my kids in school next to them. They don't look like us. Like there was no room for any of that kind of talk. They were to treat sojourners with, with compassion. And, and, and the Lord, as He communicates this to him, what does He remind them of? Hey, you were sojourners. And so God's people, even for us today, the, the, the New Testament makes clear that this is not our home. That if you're a born-again believer in Jesus and a follower of Christ, we are foreigners here. We're just passing through. We're pilgrims. We're exiles. We're, we are here just passing through. And so God's people historically have always been understood as, as sojourners. And, and for these people in particular, they knew what it was like to be in a place that was foreign and to be mistreated because of that. And so God is not going to have it. He doesn't put up with that sort of attitude. And so his people are to live in a way that respects and sees the dignity in every single human life as made in God's image. Verses 22 through 24, we stay on the horizontal plane with justice for widows and orphans. It says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Verse 23, if you mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. So, so widows and orphans, for the most part, are quintessential examples of the weak and the vulnerable, okay? P particularly in, in this culture that in those that first received this, these laws, they had very little legal standing and, and they needed special support. That was true of widows and that was true of the orphans. They were dependent solely on the kindness of others. Now surely there were some situations, particularly when I'm thinking of widows, there were some widows who maybe came from wealth or money or had children around that could protect them and, and care for them. But for the most part, the widow was an example of 
weakness and vulnerability in the society. But the orphans now, the orphans, um, I, I don't think they need any explanation. I mean, it, it, it's really clear and, and easy to understand why they would need the support and the love and the care of, of those in the community. And so, again, the Lord doesn't want His people to be so consumed with who they are and what they got going on that they don't look around them and see the needs of the vulnerable and the weak that are right there in their communities. Okay? Next, 25 and 27, we stay on the horizontal plane. He says, if you lend... Wait, let me back up. Let me back up. Verse 24, because I want us to see the seriousness here. Did you notice verse 24? 23 and 24. That if they don't look after the orphan and the widow, if you do mistreat them and they cry to me, I will surely hear their cry and, and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children shall become fatherless. I mean, I'm hoping that that sort of raises our eyebrow, even though that it should have raised their eyebrows much higher than it should ours. But you see the seriousness of the Lord in these commands. Like, don't overlook these people in your society. Don't just go about your day because the Lord will hear their cry and the Lord will act on that. God hears the cry of the wrong, and so therefore we must be intentional and understand the seriousness of His command here. Now, 25 through 27. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. Now, this is speaking of like a predatory loan. Say if, if, uh, if, if I need to borrow some money from Randy and Anita and I'm, I'm, I'm down on my luck and I don't have anything and I say, hey, I need to borrow $5,000. And they say, sure, you can borrow $5,000, but you're going to pay 25% interest over the, the time period that you pay it back. Um, that, that's exactly what the Lord is talking about. He, he doesn't want his people to have this mindset of getting rich off others' misfortune. And so he wants their hearts to be generous, and he's okay with the money being paid back. Like, that's actually a good thing, even though it may not be true in every situation. But he doesn't want them to try to get rich off the misfortunes of those that are in their community. Verse 26, you see, if you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear him, for I am... Compassionate. So, so if someone has so little collateral or that his, his collateral is so little that it's the shirt off its back, um, make sure you give it back at night. Again, he, he doesn't want his people to be so greedy and so money hungry that they're so like the, even in this case, they're willing to help out this individual. But they're willing to take collateral that would be all that he has in the shirt off his back. And he's saying, look, hey, look, if, if, if that's the case, give him his shirt back at night because that's all he has. The law is shifting their focus off of themselves and onto who? Their neighbor. The Lord wants His people to be engaged with their neighbor, and He wants them to treat their neighbors fairly. So God is against anyone, and this is still true today, God is against anyone or anything or any system that is rigged against the weak. Any system that is rigged to exploit the misfortunes of others is anti-the Lord and anti-Christianity and something that we should clearly speak against and not be a part of. Verses 29 through 30. No, I skipped one. 28. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. No. 
I shouldn't have to pause here very long, should I? Let's start first with this word, revile God. And then we'll talk about how we're supposed to treat our rulers. This word revile, it means to belittle. So do not revile God means do not belittle God or make God insignificant or, or live as if God is insignificant. Then you notice the second part of this verse and it attaches the, the first thought to the second thought, nor curse a ruler of your people. And so one of the ways, according to the Mosaic law, that they did not belittle or make God insignificant, one way to do that is by not reviling or cursing the ruler of your people. Romans chapter 13 is a good place for us to go and read and have an understanding of God's providential sovereign hand over all kings and all rulers. Proverbs says kings are streams of water in the hands of the Lord. That means every single king and president Monarch, like every single leader since the world's beginning has been placed by the Lord. The ones you've loved and the ones you've hated, they're all placed by the Lord. And, and friends, that is a very basic fundamental thing for us as Christians to believe. And, and it's actually freeing for us to believe in God's providence in this way because then we don't have to be so consumed and so obsessed with the political realm because we know that ultimately it wasn't the votes of the Americans or the votes of the Indonesians. I don't even know if they can vote there. Like whatever the deal is, the reason a leader finds his place in the position that he's in is ultimately because of the Lord. And this doesn't mean that every leader is was or is like God's favorite. It's not like, I mean, I mean, that's not what it's saying. It just means that God puts a person in that position of power because he has a purpose. And it may be to lead that group, that particular group to prosperity, or it may be to lead that particular group to judgment. But I think the point is we don't revile the ruler without reviling God. And so whenever we curse the ruler or we revile the ruler or we belittle the ruler, we have to understand them. Like what we're actually saying in that is, is there is fundamentally a faith issue in our understanding how that ruler got in the position or she got in the, uh, into the position that she finds herself in. So Romans 13, again, is a good New Testament place to kind of camp out. Next, 29 through 30. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. Now, twenty-nine through thirty is is still in, in the vertical category in my mind in, in regards to how we live rightly before the Lord. Whatever we have, whatever you and I have, whatever the people of Israel had was a gift from the Lord's hand. So the first thing that the Lord asked them to do is to give back to Him. He is gracious. He's incredibly gracious. He's so gracious that He's given us everything that we have. But even on top of that, He's gracious enough to let us steward most of it. And so He's asked us to give back to Him. And so th this is an Old Testament law that th the principle still applies for us today. Giving to the Lord and giving back to the Lord is a constant reminder of just the reality that everything we have has been given to Him, um, given to us by Him. It reminds us of why we have what we have, and it reminds us of His position in our lives. Verse 31. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beast in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. 
this last part is is also vertical justice, how we live rightly before the Lord. And, I, and, and this word surrender came to mind with this idea of consecration. Like to be consecrated is to be set apart. So, so God's people are to be consecrated to Him. And then He gives an example of one of their dietary laws that honestly are just really difficult for us to understand or know how to apply, even though the Lord had very specific and intentional reasons for it. I think the main thing we need to understand is that from, every, from the things that, uh, that they ate to the way that they treated orphans to the way that they treated widows, like everything in their culture was meant for them to live distinctly because they are consecrated to God. God has redeemed them. God has separated them. He has drawn them out and set them up as a nation unto Himself. And, and so His people have a marked difference in the way that they live. And specifically, still today, God's people have a marked difference in the way that, the, um, um, that we live as it relates to justice. First, justice before God, which is recognizing the Lord for who He is, the sovereign, powerful, just, and faithful God that He is. Second, before others, in caring for those who, who are vulnerable. This is what, according to the Mosaic Law, was one of the things that were going to make God's people distinct. Listen, friends, they were already distinct because He had already saved them. He had consecrated them. And the same thing is true of us. Christ has saved us, and now He has set us apart, and now we are to live out that reality. We don't live in a way to try to gain the reality of being set apart. We live out the reality of the fact that we have been consecrated to the Lord and set apart to the Lord by His work and His work alone. Now, we muscled our way through these laws, and I asked this question. Why these kind of laws? Like, why does this matter? I want you to turn over to Exodus 23, verse 9, and I should have this verse up there, Zach. I think 23, 9 answers the question of 22, 23, and I'm sorry, 21, 22, and 23 is why, why these laws. 23, verse 9 says, You shall not oppress a sojourner. And here it is. I think this is the answer. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land. Of Egypt. So why these kind of laws? If you're a note taker, jot down these two things. Because of who you were and because of who God is. Because of who you were and because of who God is. Essentially the Lord, with the emphasis on these type laws, is saying to His people, that if you don't care to help the weak, then you're not in touch with your own helplessness. If God's people at this point in their life have no desire to help the sojourner, have no desire to help the weak and the vulnerable in their community, then they have not come to grips with the grace that they have just experienced from being saved by the Lord from those very things. And so at the very center of the mindset of God's people is the fact that we understand what it means to be vulnerable. We understand what it means to be weak. And for us, it might mean, and it primarily means in the spiritual sense, even though you may not have ever experienced these things in your physical life. But the Israelites had. They had experienced vulnerability. They had experienced depression. They had experienced weakness. They knew what it meant to be a sojourner. And so, uh, again, why would God give them these kind of laws? Because of who they were and because of who He is. Now they are set apart and distinct and meant to display this kind of love and compassion and grace that they have experienced from the Lord. And so the Lord built this into their everyday life 
noticed that's come up a lot over the last few weeks. We've talked a lot about God's concern with the mundane. Like he's very concerned with how we treat individuals in individual moments, even if it's just a split second of the day. God cares about that. And he built these laws into the life of his people so that they would always have before them the grace and the mercy that they had experienced and that they would have a desire to show that same type grace and mercy to the people around them. But this was not primarily for a better living experience or primarily for social reasons. There's no guarantee that as God's people, if we commit to live in this way, that the society is going to love us for it. Okay, But again, the distinction is not necessarily just the compassion. The distinction is the message that comes with the compassion in the humanitarian acts. And that is the Lord and who He is. For us, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only hope. And so God has built these laws into the life of His people. And some of the principles that still apply for us today, not just to make our lives better or to have this you know, utopia of a society where everything's okay and everything's happily ever after. Friends, like that's not going to happen here. One day, yes, it's coming, but, but it's not, it's not going to happen here ever. But we as God's people are still to live in this way as a display of our God and a reminder to us of His love. And so this is a sentence you might want to jot down, but our social involvements are the reflection of the deeper reality of our relationship with God. And so our social involvements are the reflection of the deeper reality of our relationship with the Lord. But we live in a culture that has perverted justice at some levels, and at every level that I can see publicly made a mockery of the gospel. And what worries me is that a lot of Christians are buying into it, and I think it's incredibly dangerous. And so I want to just end with three practical things for us to think through. You may not agree with me. Look, and that's okay. I would love to have open conversations about these things, but as I... Uh, we don't normally address these kind of things out of like just in a, as a topic alone, but our text today brings up these type issues and how we are to live as God's people. And I think it fits and I think it will be applicable if at the bare minimum, it'll at least make us all think. OK, but I think there are three huge theological problems with a socially driven gospel. Like like the the goal of this gospel is social euphoria. First is this major theological problem with the socially driven gospel is that for the most part it believes that man isn't that bad. A lot of times its adherents blame sin on societal structures rather than human nature. Basically the message of, a, of the social gospel is if we get the social and economic situation under control then we can live happily ever after which assumes that man's greatest problem, whether you would be in the category of the oppressed or the oppressor, is the circumstance or the situation and not indwelling sin. That is clearly not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that we as individuals that make up a society 
have not only a sin problem, but we are spiritually dead, which means we, ha- we don't have the ability in us to live in a way that honors and glorifies the Lord. It's not in us. By nature, according to Scripture, we are haters of God. We're enemies of His. And, and that has to be dealt with on an individual basis, not on a societal basis. Second theological problem is cultural transformation is the primary mission. Basically, if people transform culture, only then can we live in in a way that honors Christ and in a way that loves others. And, And friends, I hope I've been clear this morning. Christians are absolutely called to engage culture. I think that's the heart of Exodus 22. But the gospel is larger than that. It's much larger than that. Through the person and work of Jesus, God fully accomplished salvation for us, rescuing us from judgment for sin and to fellowship with Him. And friends, it's then, later, in the next life, that He restores the creation in which we can enjoy our new life together with Him forever. But, but this socially driven gospel wants us to focus on things that aren't eternal, that won't last, and that don't save souls. Again, we do engage the culture But what makes us distinct is not the fact that we want to see a group that's oppressed uh, rescued. Like that's a pretty normal human thing. Like still, we still fight for those things. But what makes us distinct is that we bring the gospel message into that that actually brings hope. That actually saves the oppressed in the truest sense. That actually guarantees that those who come to the Father through the Son will live in a land one day where there will be no more sin. There will be no more partiality. There will be no more prejudice. There will be no more socioeconomic issues. Like all of that will be washed away. And, And that's coming one day when the Lord finally redeems everything. But that reality is not, it's not today. Third theological problem, and this is probably the biggest one in my mind is it has no need for the cross. What I've noticed over the last probably year or so, two years maybe, is even in Christ, primarily in Christian context, so I'm, not, I'm not addressing right now the culture, like the world. What I'm addressing right now are things that I've heard from Christians, like pastors that I love and appreciate and have followed for years and have a lot of respect for. And so I'm, I'm still wrestling through some of these things, but a lot of what I've heard is that basically, and this is a summary, but sin is fault with sin. Conversion therapy brings inner peace. Reparations bring forgiveness. Wealth distribution brings unity. Behavior modification brings transformation. So, so the things that this social gospel promises are peace, forgiveness, unity, and transformation. They sound wonderful, don't they? Because they are wonderful, but they only come through who? Jesus. That's it. I'm not saying there, maybe there is a place for conversion therapy, even though I don't think we're talking about the same conversion. (laughs) I mean, there, there is a place for reparations. We've seen that in the Mosaic Law. We see that in the Bible. There is a place to have an honest, have some honest conversations about who's rich and why. We need to think about modifying our behavior. I'm not saying those are bad things, but those are not ultimate things. And they don't ultimately bring peace and forgiveness and unity and transformation. Those things only come through Jesus Christ. That's it. 
And what worries me is, that, is, is there seems to be this trend or this shift to get away from the gospel, even though people would say we're not getting away from the gospel. But I'm like, well, why aren't you talking about it? Like, where is it? Oh, it's still there. But we just live in a day and age where you can't, you can't just say the gospel and only the gospel. There has to be more to it. And I'm, I, I, I can't, I'm not down with that. Like, I can't get on that ship. Plus, plus it has no need for a cross because it's works based at its core. Do all these things and then your sin can be dealt with. Maybe. Maybe. But what happens is this, is whenever you try to wipe away sin with things that are works based, guess what you still have? Sin. There's only one place sin can be taken away. There's only one person that can wipe our slate completely clean. It's Jesus. Essentially, you can get to the end goal, according to the social gospel, you can get to the end goal and never have a need for the cross of Jesus. We are to speak up for the vulnerable. We are to care for the poor. We are to desire justice. But we have to know that what makes us distinct is the gospel's power as our hope. So, if, I mean, you're pa- I know a lot of you are passionate about these things. Continue to be passionate about these things. But don't keep the gospel in your back pocket. Like if you want to see peace, if you want to see unity, if you want to see transformation, share the gospel. Share the gospel. I, I know we all love being a part of a cause, especially a cause that is close to our heart. And, you know, there, there seems to be a lot of, you know, momentum built around hashtags and different things. And people want to jump on board. And I see a lot of Christians jumping on, on the next cause. And I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad thing, but I do want to say this. Like, you have a cause. Like, we have a cause. And we have a purpose and we have a reason that we, as believers, still have breath in our lungs and blood in our veins. And it's to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only hope for mankind. And the only hope for any society. And the only hope that we one day will live forever in a place that actually has forgiveness, peace, unity, and transformation. Engaging. The culture by proclaiming the truth of Christ crucified as the only hope for sinners. That, that's how we engage the culture. So, so as we engage the culture by feeding the hungry and giving food to the thirsty and loving the orphan, as we engage, Todd, as, as wonderful as it would be if you engaged these orphans with Frisbee and with coffee and with donuts and game nights, th- those are all wonderful things, wonderful things. But the reality is, and Todd knows this, the reality is that he can engage those orphans and all of those good things, but never bring up the main thing. And he's missed the point as a believer of engaging the culture. Like the reason that we engage the culture is because we have a cause and we have the greatest story and the greatest message that can ever be told. And it's Christ crucified. Let me ask you, is, in your mind, is the gospel enough? Is Christ alone enough? And I say yes. Because Jesus is a compassionate God. He's the strong one who became supremely weak so that he could save those who could not save themselves. This is our story. This is my story. My story is of one who was an orphan spiritually. 
of one who was oppressed and in bondage spiritually, of one who was an outcast spiritually, one who was helpless, hurting, weak, and vulnerable. And our God sent His Son to us to live the life that we cannot live and die the death that we deserve so that we as orphans could be saved and have a real Father, a true Father forever. And He welcomed sinners, all kinds of sinners. He who was rich for our sakes became poor that He might save us who cannot save themselves. And so we engage the culture. We look out for the weak and the vulnerable in very practical ways. But we always have the primary message and point and goal of what we're about in our society and in our culture is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just with our hands and feet. The gospel is a message that's made up of words. And so the whole deal about share the gospel, use words if necessary, throw that mug away, tear up that little bump sticker, burn that t-shirt, because that's not true. I understand the sentiment and I appreciate it. But the gospel is a message that's made up of words that is meant to be preached and heard and believed. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together. I know these, these last few weeks are heavy. They just, I mean, we're, we're dealing with your law. We're dealing with things that are not always fun to talk about. Um, and, and so, Lord, as we close this time out in, in, in a way of response as your people, I pray that as we take the elements this morning, um, that you would remind us of the salvation, the great salvation that you have given us. God, that we would celebrate and worship you for who you are. God, that this would be a time of reflection and repentance, if necessary. And Father, that we would leave here with full confidence and hope and knowing that this world is not our home, but you've called us here to be distinct. You've consecrated us to yourself through the blood of your Son. And so we are to live differently. We are to love differently. We are to talk differently because we have a different hope know that our hope is not here. It's beyond here. And so, Father, I pray that we would understand as individuals and as a church that our primary message, primary, is Christ crucified as the only hope for sinners. And it's then and only then that we see peace and unity and transformation. But we thank you for this time. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to seat. You should see the elements there. First Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you this in remembrance of me. me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You may drink We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. 
If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.